I am Dr. Lamont Repolette, New Jersey's Commissioner of Education. Welcome to the DOE Digest, a podcast from the New Jersey Department of Education. It is a platform for information exchange in which the department will highlight the work being done by innovative and transformative educators around the state. I have been working to redesign the Department of Education to what I call NJDOE 2.0. This podcast is one of the ways that we utilize our digital platform to help strengthen teaching, leading, and learning, and increase educational equity for the 1.4 million students across New Jersey. I hope you enjoyed today's topic. Hello, and welcome to the DOE Digest. I'm your host, Ken Bond. In this month's episode, we as a department are going to be looking at confronting systemic racism. The episode starts off with an interview between Tanya Breland and George Guy, a principal in Cherry Hill, and then we end it with a conversation between myself and Dan Tolino. These are difficult times for a lot of us. We're confronted again and again with brutality of murders of black men and women around the country. We're trying to think about how we can make lasting change and lots of folks are angry. As we think about that anger, we're also thinking about what we can do with it and how we can change systems of education and of society that are inequitable and that are biased. So these two conversations will hopefully help you as you're thinking through your own context and your own locus of control. And hopefully it will also add to the statewide conversation about making our state a better, a more equitable place. As we jump in, I want to thank George, Tanya, and Dan. They share deeply personal narratives, and I'm grateful that they trusted me with their stories. So I'm George Guy. I am the principal of Rosa International Middle School in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I also serve as the co-chair for our district's Cultural Proficiency, Equity, and Character Education Committee. I am Tanya Breland. I am the director for the Office of Professional Learning at the Department of Education. I also lead a number of equity-related initiatives. I first want to start by asking just how are you doing through all of this? How am I doing professionally and how am I doing personally are the, are the ways that I will probably try to answer that question. Professionally, I'm, I'm in an environment in which a school district has already made a statement about George Floyd and uh, is already working vigorously to try and put resources in the hands of, our, of, of over a thousand staff members and trying to reach out to all of our students, we have close to 11,500, but particularly our students of color. We have been reaching out to our staff of color just as recently as today. We will be putting out uh, employee assistance program information uh, specifically to support staff of color as we look at things like racial battle fatigue and issues around uh, systemic racism that particularly people of color with Ahmaud Avery and later in Kentucky with Breonna Taylor and some of the pieces that we saw in New York City and Central Park. Folks uh, professionally here, our staff and our students have been struggling with those things, but I, I do experience some racial 
battle fatigue, but I feel like I'm in a good place with a lot of support systems within the, the school district, colleagues and supervisors that understand uh, systemic issues around race that are being dealt with, not only within the police, but some of the systemic things that we deal with within a school system as well. Personally, it's a struggle. My, my most vivid memories of this are 1992 and Rodney King, but now I have an 18 and a 20-year-old at home who are African-American males who are, are seeing these things firsthand with uh, Avery Taylor and, and now Floyd and seeing the protest. So I thought in 1992, after there was some resolution, uh, supposed resolution around that, I wouldn't have thought that I would be speaking to my 18 and 20 year old sons about the same things decades later. So I'm struggling with, with that, that I seem to be in Groundhog's Day personally over and over again, seeing some of the same things that we've seen, even though I wasn't alive in the 60s, but the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now in 2020. Yeah, I, I know exactly what, you, what you're experiencing. I am 50, and I remember um, the Rodney King situation and the riots that came as a result of that. And it's really unfortunate that we continue to see situations where police brutality seems to disregard black lives. You know, you use the term racial battle fatigue. Yeah, yes. I think that's a really good word to describe a lot of what African-Americans in this country would probably say they're experiencing. And, you know, as educators, I feel we have a responsibility to educate as well as to support and provide resources. As you navigate through the pressures of running a school, you know, first there's the coronavirus. It's still here. It hasn't gone away. And at the same time, you know, you're seeing these examples of systemic racism. And I'm sure that the coronavirus has probably brought to light some other inequities. And then we see these census murders that continue to happen. You know, how are you navigating all of this? With, with, with our students, what we've been trying to do is to use the standards of instruction that we have from the state to be able to open up dialogue We've made some concerted efforts to try and use our curricular focus, especially last week in the beginning of this week, and we'll continue through this week, to use uh, supplementary materials from Teaching Tolerance and other uh, supplements to be able to get kids to talk specifically about race. We've not been shy about using the language of allies and accomplices with our children when we talk with them about race, because we are a predominantly Caucasian school district, so that they understand some of these things that their classmates families are going through. I'm glad that you brought up, uh, you know, COVID-19, Tanya, because especially from an African-American standpoint and, and our Latino brothers and sisters as well, when we talk about COVID-19 and the state has, has um, closed school since March the 18th, we've been adversely affected with both black and brown bodies who have not only been ill and many of which have recovered and we're thankful for that, but many of which have passed, and I know that has hit my family personally. 
um, and it has hit many of our families personally. We've already, as a district, worked, especially our high school, High School West, has done some great things with restorative practices. Uh, some of us have worked with trauma-informed education, but now we're looking at what ACEs, how ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences have increased with children, because many of these children have been hit with the coronavirus in their families, like my family has. There have been deaths that they've had to deal with. Many of their parents have been essential workers uh, and essential workers of low paying jobs. So how we do education, even in this remote environment, we've been very careful about uh, how we have registered attendance because that can be a systemic issue. We've tried to adjust when we're talking with families and kids because eight to two, nine to three, families may not be available and children may not be available if they are supporting other kids within the household. You, you talk about the issues uh, that have been happening across our country that deal with systemic uh, racial injustice uh, from the police force, but you also deal with systemic health inequities, systemic unemployment inequities, and what is our role and responsibility within that? Uh, those are conversations that we have with our leadership teams um, and with our teacher leaders so that we can be mindful when we are trying to do this thing called education, uh, that we're taking all these things into consideration. I, I was sharing with my um my family just this this past weekend how difficult it's been because it's like the rage has been unleashed in a lot of people and you know people are are angry about the inequities and they're tired and you know like Fannie Lou Hamer said they're sick and tired of being sick and tired and mm -hmm. when we think about the rage against racist systems and racist people and as educators we have to be very responsible in how we guide our staff and how we guide our students in addressing and responding, you know, how do we help leverage that rage and use it as a catalyst for change? Using scenarios of the current events and not shying away from having those courageous conversations like Glenn Singleton talks about in his book that deal with talking with our kids about their racial identity. I think many of our kids, especially between 11 and 14, are coming to grips um, with the predominant race in this particular district and throughout our country with, with, with their whiteness. If we don't open up the doors for those conversations, and predominantly that's going to happen, most of the research shows that um, our teaching force are middle-aged white women. If we don't prepare those teachers to respond when rage uh, happens with children last week, this week, uh, and it comes out in many different ways, and we don't have an answer for them, and I think that the, the answer can just be validating the anger at times. Uh, we talk with, uh, we have a coach proficiency in equity elementary and secondary group, and we met with them. We had from their colleagues who were people of color, male African-Americans, who were very frustrated. And they were able to say, as allies and accomplices, uh, these white women, I hear you. 
and it's and it's wrong and it's and it's frustrating and this is this is what i'm going to do i'm going to say it's not right and it's wrong it's frustrating in my english you know in my ninth grade english class in my 10th grade english class in my 11th grade us history 1 class and just that validation from our staff to young people and to their families is enough for people to know that this is real. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was on ESPN with Scott Van Pelt last night, and he said that racism is like dust. It's all around us. You're ch we're choking on it, but only when we go into a room and we open up the shades do we start to see where the dust actually is. So when we validate that the dust is real, that what we're choking on is real, even if you can't see it, uh, and then when we open the shades and see the light shining on the dust, we can certainly do some different things about quelling how it takes over that room and so that we can have healthy, clean air, teaching all of our children how to validate that the frustration that particularly African-American males are having, that the frustrations that I have to have conversations with my two sons when they go out to drive about where their hands need to be on the steering wheel, and what, what timbre of voice do they need to have with the police officer, no matter what the circumstance, and if there are friends in the car, what those friends need to uh, need to be able to say and do to be able to get out of that scenario alive. If we can tell our children and our white colleagues uh, to validate that, that that is something real, if we can start to do that on a more whole scale level um, and not run away from these conversations, not try to skirt around these conversations, not think that we're going to be fired because we're having these conversations or that there will be some innate racial animus that will come to us because we're having these sorts of conversations. I think that's a good beginning that we can do for our young people and for our staff as it relates to trying to validate uh, the inequities that people of color have been facing and will and we'll continue to face even after our conversation and beyond. I really like the dust analogy because it makes it relatable that anybody can understand that. When I listen to you talk about the conversations that you have with your sons, you know, I have a 24-year-old son who, you know, is out on his own and he lives in another state and we're constantly having conversations with him and and uh, and and with our daughter who's a little bit older, we've had, you know, similar conversations with her as well. And I can tell you the fear that our um, young black men in particular feel when they think about the police is real. And that is something that's really hard as parents to have to, to deal with. It's it's a burden that's hard to, to unlift and, and to um, be free from until change happens. And I think some of that change comes about, you know, I've heard a number of experts and other allies say that it is not black people's responsibility to solve racism because we didn't create racism. And so it's really important that our allies are there advocating and working towards helping create solutions around racism. How do you promote allyship within your district and how do you create environments where students feel comfortable stepping forward and saying, yeah, I want to stand 
beside my black and brown brothers and sisters and support them and help change the system that has created oppression for many of them. Within our school district, uh, we have coupled with the Anti-Defamation League, we're closer to Philadelphia, so that's the area in which we've partnered with, and specifically Cherry Hill High School West, being a no place for hate school, has taken their peer leaders to no, hate, uh, no place for hate conferences at the Anti-Defamation League, and they have learned how to be allies and accomplices. I think there's a, there's a difference between the whole ally and accomplice piece. The, uh, the ally piece is more where they have, the peer leaders have been taught to kind of validate, which is what I talked about earlier, Tanya. Um, but the accomplice piece is more of um, our white uh, brothers and sisters doing more as it relates to getting into systemic racial issues and being more of a doer than just validating verbally. We hope to spread that work because we have several No Place for Hate schools. We're, we're having a meeting and uh, we are going to be talking with, Cal uh, with, with white accomplices who are moving kids who historically have not been moved into those upper level classes. And that comes from a focus that uh, Cherry Hill Public Schools has that believes that systemically we need to be accomplices in this work. We can't be gatekeepers to historically underserved students. So um, those are some of the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish. We wouldn't want you all to believe at the NJDOE that, that we're there, but I think that we're in a position where COVID is forcing us to kind of not just reform what it is that we're doing, but try to be more revolutionary. I know that it's still a journey for you, but it sounds like your district is moving in the right direction towards helping students to feel like they can be comfortable and that they can be themselves and they belong in a community. And I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, you know, thinking about, you know, we have over 56% of our student body who are students of color in the state of New Jersey. And yet there are less than 20% of teachers of color in the state of New Jersey. I think about teachers of color who are currently trying to support students struggling right now with all that's happening with the coronavirus, all that's happening with the social justice issues in our, in our country. And then I think about our, you know, our teachers who are not of color. What are some ways that you might recommend districts across the state support teachers of color and then help empower teachers who are not of color to be able to join in as accomplices, if you will? Mm -hmm. A goal within our district plan that deals with not only recruitment but retention of teachers of color. The biggest question that we ask ourselves as a committee is what is it that we're doing to be able to retain those teachers because many of them are going to be experiencing social isolation where they are the only person of color. One of the things that we have worked on in the past that we need to get back to is we had gatherings every twice a year for 
staff members of color, and then those allies and accomplices who wanted to come and hear those voices of staff members of color. Uh, we haven't done it as much as we had done in the last decade, but when we did do it, we would have our own staff members, we would invite other uh, surrounding districts, and we would fishbowl activities that deal with support systems and building up your support systems. And if a microaggression happens to you, like during the course of a day, who do you reach out to to vent at that time because you may not have anyone within that building? Those are some of the pieces that we need to be able to put back together. I think when we talk about our uh, staff members who are not people of color to be allies and accomplices, one of the things we're in our third year of working with elementary and secondary cultural proficiency and equity team leaders, and we have them at all 19 of our schools in our elementary settings and in our secondary settings, and they meet uh, six times a year with a outside consultant. Her name is Dr. Barbara Moore Williams, an incredible, incredible uh, resource for the district. She has done modules with us that really deal with cultural competence, that really deal with inequities and equitable understandings of what we do with uh, teacher leaders and building leaders. And then in professional learning opportunities at our elementary, they have a specific space of uh, professional learning every morning that these particular modules can be implemented. So what I would say to districts is you, you, you've got to start somewhere. If you don't keep the conversation in front of you, like I keep the conversation in front of me in faculty meetings, in department meetings, um, we are constantly having the conversation. We're weaving it in no matter what the circumstance. And it's not always racial inequity. Sometimes it's access and opportunity uh, inequities that we'll be talking about. But we are, we are talking about equity in some form or another. If we are talking about budgets, which we're all talking about right now, we, we are talking about inequities and what is it that we're going to keep sacred as it relates to budget to be able to support opportunity and access for especially historically underserved students and families who have already been beat down by coronavirus. We don't have it all together, but we, we certainly feel like we've asked enough questions about the struggles of inequity to be able to come up with some answers that, that, that make sense but that is always evolving and always changing and, and believe that here in Cherry Hill Public Schools we are a group of learners uh, and that unlearning we're finding is probably the hardest thing that we are we are struggling with. So I thank you for the opportunity and I'm looking forward to more interactions and more dialogues like this. George and Tanya talked about allies and accomplices. And those are two terms that are important to think about as an educator. If we're not people of color or not from marginalized backgrounds, we need to think about how we can become an ally and an accomplice. Part of that's unlearning. Part of that is relearning. And what I talked to Dan Tolino about in the next section is about some of those lessons that we need to learn to be able to make a difference where we teach and where our lives happen. My name is Dan Tolino. I am a dad, a husband, a father, a uh, brother, a son, uh, an educator in many different spaces, currently in South Jersey. I work as an instructor at the College of Education at Rowan University. I serve as a professor in residence at West Deptford Middle School. 
and I also work with many districts in the region on equity councils and curriculum redevelopment teams. So how, how are you in these times and how are you processing through things? Well, thank you for asking, Ken. I think it's important for us to make sure that at all of our meetings, we do exactly what you just did is to check in with our people to see how they are doing, um, because even showing up to work right now for, for some folks is it's, 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 it's a challenge. And, you know, for me, things have been, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten used to some of the things that are happening, you know, the, the global things, the immediate things. Uh, I would say that the events with George Floyd and the other murders around the country that have uh, of our Black Americans have impacted me and my home greatly, my work greatly. I think my you know my wife is uh, African American, ours are my children, and we have an older son who's 25 and he's North Jersey, so we worry about him daily, and he's called us with uh, some very serious emotions that we kind of feel helpless to support him. Um, because he's, you know, he's distant, but he's been working through all this through the last few months. He, he's an essential worker, so it's been difficult. You know, so anxiety is a real thing that people deal with. I've had some, but, you know, I, I'm, no, I'm thankful in general for my position in this world. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. We've had, you know, one passing um, of an uncle. Um, but, you know, right now my, my main concern is my wife and my children and their well-being. And uh, that's a real, it's a daily thing right now. So there are moments uh, that have been less anxious than others but also you know the work and my friends a lot of my white friends not understanding what's happening so they've been reaching out to me a lot so a lot of text messages and emails uh, asking questions asking what to do and um it's it's really engaging and it's meaningful um but it's just a lot but it's of course it's so very important it's a tough question to answer ken but i think it's a great question Thank, thank you for sharing, and, and I'm thinking about you a lot, and um, really appreciate the way that you support those around you. You do a lot of work with white educators, so what have those conversations been looking like around the the police brutality that we've seen, the murders of, of black people? Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's, it's been very individualized. I have students on Twitter who've been reaching out and trying to understand how to critique systems and critique individuals while also taking some sort of form of action without being able to converse like this, like through a conversation where we talk and we build off one another. It's been difficult to really articulate some of the things that over a course of a semester or a year or an internship that you can do, but they are concerned. And that was inspiring to me. But that's, you know, the, the good side of it. There have been other situations where I've worked with educators, white educators who absolutely do not understand what it means to center someone else's experience. The word but comes up quite often in meetings after a black individual might share their experience or their feelings and um, which further marginalizes people. And I've heard that often uh, this week in some meetings. And it hurts to see that happen um, because the end result is that we continue to uphold some of the systems that have been traditionally marginalizing people, causing trauma, not culturally sustaining people. And as we sit on equity committees and we sit on climate and culture committees and we try to do good work, we're sometimes reinforcing some of the things that we see being protested. 
so even right now there's resistance to alleviating trauma in some of these situations in some of these spaces thank you for highlighting that next next thing i wanted to talk about is that i i've heard multiple folks of the last week or so talk about the guilt that they feel and that recent events have exposed related to their own privilege as white folks and also you know maybe even part of that is based on the biases that they have held and and they've realized that they held as they've been challenged on some of their beliefs how can educators turn those feelings of guilt maybe even like wrongdoing how can they turn those feelings into action and activism instead of just feeling guilty or maybe even sorry for themselves yeah, Ken, I think you may have sat in on a meeting once with me with uh, Shelly Zion where this kind of came up. We were, we were reading White Fragility and something like this came up. And uh, Shelly Zion, my advisor, she she had an interesting point about, you know, Christianity and many of in this area, there's many Christians. And, you know, oftentimes we, we sin and repent and we move forward with a better course of action. And I think that analogy is important to understand that it's not about necessarily feeling guilty. It's about reflecting on that guilt and being reflexive in our praxis. So we go back to Frary, right? And the idea of the word praxis, action plus reflection, reflection plus plus action. I really think the most important thing educators can do is keep a reflective a reflection journal, um, whether it's their first year teacher or their 20th year teacher. And reflect on the week, whether it's two paragraphs for the week or whether it's a paragraph a day or whatever. But being reflective in our practice, because the guilt is not productive. We have to forgive ourselves of whatever it is that caused that guilt, but we have to move forward. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to perpetuate that. So what does that look like? That looks like writing down our thoughts and our feelings working into and with and throughout those contradictions in our minds. So if we don't understand Black Lives Matter, instead of just saying, I don't understand Black Lives Matter, write about what you don't understand. And then investigate the Black Lives Matter website, see what they're doing, sign up for their text messages and see all their calls to action. You know, oftentimes a lot of my white friends reach out to me and say, I never see Black Lives Matter when this or that happens. And I say, well, that's because you haven't signed up for their website. You haven't signed up for their text messages. You're not not actually invested in what they're about and what they're doing. So I think you could take really easy steps. They have calls to action weekly with podcasts and webinars and resources that are sent out. And that's just one thing they can do. We as educators can look at our curriculum, our individual curriculum. We can look at the assignments we're doing. Are we incorporating all of the perspectives of a certain time period? Instead of watching certain shows, I mean, Netflix and Amazon Prime alone has countless, endless, really well-vetted documentaries that we can watch for further information. We can look at other people's bookshelves, right? So one thing I like to do is send out pictures of bookshelves because until you audit your own bookshelf, looking for other texts, having conversations with your family about what it really means to be racist or not racist, I really think so much of this work is done on the individual level, but also maybe challenging our policies. So being, like if you're part of your association within a building, challenging some of the, the rules in the school as far as discipline's concerned, as far as dress codes are concerned, little things like that. And then also listening to 
the people in our buildings who are of color, our black teachers, our black staff members, listening to their perspective, centering that perspective, not saying but, and taking action on that perspective. You know, so many of our policies and procedures that were written by people that continually marginalize others. So holding tight to these policies in our buildings and holding tight in our districts to certain policies that were never written with certain people in mind and perspectives in mind and experiences in mind, we continue to further marginalize by holding onto the policy as the reason to not post the Black Lives Matter on our, on our school property, right? If that's the only reason why we're not doing it, maybe we should listen to the perspective of the people being negatively impacted in our district, in our schools, using that as our center, just for right now at least, right? Seeing where that takes us. And I know that might sound a little bit radical and it might be unlawful in the eyes of some people, but I would also say there's been plenty of laws throughout our country's history that unless they were challenged would still be really terrible laws in our country right now. So I think as white educators, the one thing I would offer is take some risks right now. Take some risk to step outside your own experience, your own centering of, of being, and take a risk to lose something, to sacrifice something of your own, your own power, and see where that goes, right? The one thing I would just say to anyone out there who is still pushing back against Black Lives Matter is just to make it explicit that just because we're centering black lives does not mean we're against anyone else. We're against anything else. It's just that we need to center experiences. And I, I do also bring this up often, our, our native and in, indigenous people as well, that we just if ever it's a time to center these experiences. So when you see Black Lives Matter hashtags, you see people who put that on their front lawns or on their street or wherever they're posting it or saying it, that it's not against anyone. It's centering and supporting specific people. Some of this is also difficult because all of us have been miseducated regardless of our ethnic or racial makeup, our backgrounds, all of us in this country have been miseducated. So I think it also needs to happen at the university level in our uh, education, our pre-service education programs and our, our, our master's programs and in our mentoring programs. Like I know you're working on some stuff with mentoring, Ken. In our mentoring programs as well, it needs to be explicit in those programs. I could tell you right now that I don't know of education programs that every single person who goes through them reads Miseducation of the Negro or reads Souls of Black Folk. And I would say those are two crucial texts to becoming an educator, the educator we want our educators to be, that those would be two foundational texts that I know are not being read, right? We all cite Dewey, Piaget, Vygotsky, and I love Dewey and Vygotsky, right? But we don't cite Du Bois and Woodson nearly as much as we cite them. And I wonder if I know how much they impacted me as an educator and, er, and other educators that I know, whether they're white, Filipino, black. I know the people who have read those texts are very similar minded folks. And I wonder how much of that. So that's a specific thing I think can be done in our education programs, but also making sure that we're culturally sustaining. We're understanding the, the, the importance of pluralism in all of our decision making. I want to again thank our guests, thank the organizations that they're a part of and invite all of you to join me for the NJ Ed Partners Twitter chat on June 16th at 8.30 p.m. to talk about the subject. We look forward to continuing to connect and engage with you about educating the 1.4 million students around the state and hope to talk to you on the hashtag NJ Ed Partners 
third Tuesday Twitter chat. You can subscribe to the podcast channel for DOE Digest through your iPhone and the Apple Podcast app or wherever else you listen to podcasts so that you can get new episodes when they are released. Also, please leave us a review through the Apple Podcasts app on your iPhone. It is the best way to help new listeners find us. Neither the New Jersey Department of Education nor its officers, employees, or agents specifically endorse, recommend, or favor views expressed by those interviewed. Discussion of resources are not endorsements. Thanks so much for listening.